Thank you for being here today. Uh, just a uh, just a little bit of a housekeeping note. Uh, we've been in the uh, the book of Acts for the last uh, four or five months or so, and today is going to be the last day um, for this year in the Acts series. Uh, we've covered chapters one, and today we're going to get through the majority of chapter fifteen. And so we'll put uh, we'll pause the series here. And then we'll pick it up again in the winter, and uh, it'll carry us through um, into, into next, uh, next Easter. So that's when we intend to finish the book of Acts. So this will be the last sermon in that series. Uh, next week, we start a brand new series for the summer uh, called Foundations, and it's all about uh, Genesis chapters 1 through 11. And so if you want to start brushing up for that, I encourage you to start reading Genesis 1 through 11 as that will be our summer series. But today we're in Acts chapter 15. So if you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn uh, to Acts chapter 15. And, uh, and I'm going to ask Andrew and Becca to come and read that for me. Morning, everybody. All right, Acts 15, 1 through 35. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So, being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and brought a great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter, And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentile should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of, the, those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient 
generations Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read ev- for he has read everything Sabbath in the synagogues. Every Sabbath in the synagogues. Then it seemed good to the apostles and to the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barabbas, and Silas, leading men to the brothers with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, whom whom themselves will tell you the same things by the word of mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, and from blood, and from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. Well, the issue at stake here is the gospel of grace. Is salvation by grace through faith, or is it by works? And the Judaizers, those who had come down from Jerusalem to Antioch, uh, tried to persuade Paul and Barnabas and the believers, the Gentile believers in Antioch, that in order to really be saved, you have to follow the law of Moses. That is, you have to become a Jew first, and then in addition to that, you have to believe in Jesus And so that was what's at stake here, that salvation by grace through faith is not sufficient, but works need to be added to salvation. In college, um, I took a French class, and for my um, research paper at the end of the semester, I wrote on Paul Cezanne, who uh, lived in Aix-en-Provence and painted the Mont Saint-Victoire over 30 times in watercolors and oil paints. And uh, it was incredible paintings, and I learned so much in this 10 or 15-page research paper and looked at all of his paintings. And at the end of the semester, uh, once I turned in my paper and uh, got it back and graded and, and went back home, I was inspired to create a painting. And so I sat down, I got all the oil paints and the canvas and everything, and, and I, I drew this sort of mountain picture. And it was the most kindergarten uh, picture. It, it looked terrible. There was no shading. There was no nuance. There was no, uh, my brush strokes were just fat and clumsy. Um, in some way, I, I don't know why I thought that I could improve upon Cezanne, um, 
with my, uh, this was my first painting, by the way. I hadn't been painting for years or anything. This was it. This was my number one thing. And, and in many ways, um, trying to improve on the sufficiency of Jesus' death on the cross uh, is like me trying to um, improve upon, I says, on painting. Uh, it's just not possible. This passage that we're in today uh, is known as the Jerusalem Council. It's the centerpiece of the book of Acts. Uh, many have called it the watershed moment in Luke's hysterical, historical narrative, uh, called the centerpiece of Acts. Because up until now, Jerusalem has been fairly prominent. Uh, Peter has also been very prominent. But this is Peter's last appearance in the book of Acts. And this chapter, the focus uh, from here forward, shifts primarily to Paul. Jerusalem fades into the background, and by the end of the next few chapters, Rome is clearly within our sights. Up until now, the Gentile explosion of new believers and their inclusion into the church has really only trickled up until this point, right? You've got uh, the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8. Uh, you've got Philip and others going through Samaria and Judea preaching the gospel. Uh, you got Peter a few chapters later uh, going down um, into um, the Mediterranean coastline and then up to Cornelius. But so far you have just a few people, Gentiles, joining the church. But then on Paul and Barnabas' first missionary journey, uh, as soon as they get off the island of Crete and they enter into Turkey, modern-day Turkey, it's an explosion of Gentile conversions. Uh, Ross Burns preached about that last week, and um, Jonathan Sign preached about it two weeks ago in Acts chapter 14. Uh, all the fruitfulness and the signs and wonders that God did in those cities in the region known as Galatia. But after Paul and Barnabas' first missionary journey, and they get home, and they're back in Antioch, and they're sharing with the church everything that has taken place, it's clear that many within the church assumed that the church would simply be a reform movement within Judaism. Do you understand what I mean by that? That the church wasn't something new as much as it was something of an extension of Judaism. So that all those, there was an assumption on the part of many, that all those who became believers from the Gentile world would now have to convert first to Judaism and then become members of the congregation. Uh, in this auditorium, you had to walk through a lobby and a foyer, and then you made it into the auditorium. If the auditorium is the church, within Judaism, they thought that in order for the Gentiles to be included, they must first go into the foyer of converting into Judaism, and then come into the church of the auditorium. And so this was the debate that was raging. Would Gentiles be able to come into the church by grace, through faith in Jesus alone? Or would they, in addition to faith, have to do works of the law, like circumcision, like dietary laws, like kosher laws, and all the other things that were required in the Levitical law? Acts 15, make no mistake, is a dispute. It's a church fight. It's an argument that ultimately leads to the division of the church. A sect comes off of this called the Judaizers. 
And they travel around, and their only goal, the Judaizers, is to uh, try to convince Gentile believers to follow the law of Moses in addition to their belief in Jesus. And there will be the apostles in the church who will argue vehemently that salvation is by grace through faith alone. So you can see here why Acts 15 is so important. What's at stake? Salvation by grace through faith. Now we can divide these, uh, this passage, verses 1 through 35, into three sections. Gra- uh, verses 1 through 5, grace is disputed. There's an argument. Uh, verses 6 through 21, grace is defended and displayed. And then verses 22 through 35, the pronouncement of salvation by grace is delivered and described to the church of Antioch. Now it's possible, if you know your New Testament history, that this is the same time frame in which the book of Galatians is written. All right, bear with me for just a minute on this little side trek into Galatians. Because you remember in Galatians chapter 2, Paul is saying, hey, when some men came down from James, from Judea, and they, they came into the church at Antioch, um, Peter used to eat with all the Gentiles. And then somewhere along the line, when these men came, Peter withdrew, and he no longer ate with the Gentiles, but only with the Jews because of their dietary rules. And Barnabas was even led astray. And Paul said in Galatians 2, 11-15, I confronted Peter to his face and said, how are you, a Jew who has been saved by grace, um, now trying to seek perfection in the law? Uh, grace is of no use to you. It's possible that Paul wrote this letter in this period before the Jerusalem church. John Stott, a, a commentator and a theologian, argues for that. And he, his timeline makes sense because if this letter from the Jerusalem council from James had already been written and delivered, certainly Paul would have already referred to it as it would have been a rule for faith. But if you go back and read Galatians, you can see that Paul is hopping mad that they have um, tried to supplant the gospel of grace by adding works. So the gospel debate is this. Are you saved by works? Can you be good enough to be saved? Are you moral in and of yourself that Jesus' work on the cross is not necessary for your salvation? Or are we dependent solely on the sufficiency of Christ and His work on the cross for our salvation? The point of this passage is that the doctrine of salvation, how a person is saved, is a top-tier issue. It's worth fighting over. It's worth fighting over the purity of the message of the Gospel. It's worth getting right And it's worth it to make sure that those who oppose it are clearly demonstrated as being wrong. You should fight and fight hard for the purity of the gospel message. Salvation by grace through faith alone in Jesus alone is an essential, if not the essential doctrine of the Christian faith. I don't want to overstate it, But it is that important, and that's why Acts 15 is so critical. My goal for you in this sermon is that you would better understand the gospel of grace and that you would reject any gospel 
of Jesus plus something for your salvation. That's my goal for you. That you would better understand the gospel of grace and that you would clearly reject the gospel of works or legalism. And then after receiving and affirming the gospel of grace, I want you to see how we're to show grace amongst the fellowship of believers because we all have different convictions. And that comes into play in the latter half of this text. So let's get back into the text a little bit. In verses 1 through 5, grace is disputed. The Judaizers, those who insisted on adding obedience to the law for salvation, they came to Antioch and they made this bold proclamation that in order for the Gentiles to be saved, they must become Jewish. Look at their language. Verse 1. Men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Verse 5, but some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Now, I emphasize that because their language, these aren't suggestions. They are clearly teaching and are convicted that Jesus' death on the cross is not sufficient for salvation. That in order for us to really be saved, we have to believe in Jesus, yes, But we also have to add to the gospel our own contribution of works and morality and righteousness. Now, I don't think this is too hard for any of us to understand. You say, well, that was then and and no one's asking me to be circumcised or to become a Jew in order to be saved. But but I think we see the gospel of works played out in our culture enough, right? I'm from a Catholic background, and uh, my family's three or four generations of Catholic. And, and so even before I even believed there was a God, I knew that in order for me to, to receive grace, see, the church, uh, the Catholic system is the dispensary of grace. And so in order for me to receive grace and forgiveness and to be saved, I had to, yes, believe in Jesus, but, but I also had to be baptized as an infant, I also had to um, have my first communion. I had to go to confession. I had to have been confirmed. I had to take the Holy Mass. I had to pray the rosary. I had to receive last rites. I had to go to confession. I had to do all these things. And if I didn't do them well enough, then the scales of my salvation would be tipped in the wrong direction. And I might have to do five or 10,000 years in purgatory. And that's a gospel of works. Many of you who aren't Catholic may not subscribe to that gospel of works, but, but you might have heard it in other ways. I remember in one of my first um, experiences with people from a charismatic or Pentecostal background, I felt inferior when they told me that unless you're born again and then also have the second baptism of the Holy Spirit, then you're not really saved. There was something added to the gospel. Just a few weeks ago, we were in Chattanooga for um, Darren and uh, Trisha's wedding, beautiful wedding, and we were just a few minutes away from uh, an Adventist campus, the Southern Adventist campus, and and I enjoyed their trails. I walked on their trails um, uh, three or four days in a row, uh, beautiful trails along a large ridge, Um, and on Saturday morning, um, Darren and I and some of his uh, groomsmen, we went out and we played disc golf on the Saturday morning pretty early, and uh, we noticed that the campus was completely dead, uh, which was kind of unusual for a college campus right around, you know, a few weeks before finals. And then we started playing disc golf, and we're just kind of, you know, 
enjoying ourselves. And, and then we hear worship music and we realize, oh yes, yeah, Seventh-day Adventism means they worship on seventh day. And they're just right across the creek um, in this amphitheater worshiping. And so uh, Pat said, well, what, what exactly do Seventh-day Adventists believe? And so for the next six or seven holes, I'm not really playing, but I'm just li- looking it up and reading and, and all these things. And, and as I read, what I, what I found out is that, and, and I don't want to paint that denomination with a broad brush because there are many different degrees there. Some Seventh-day Adventists believe very similarly to what we do, but the majority take on the teachings of a prophetess named Ellen G. White. She wrote over 10,000 pages of prophecy in her time and, um, and uh, published m- multiple books that have really shaped the Seventh-day Adventist uh, doctrinal distinctives. And it was during one of her prophecies that she said that Sabbath worship is necessary for salvation. And those who worship, so we would be considered not believers because we are not observing Sabbath day worship, Saturday worship. And once you compromise the gospel of grace, salvation by grace through faith, and you add works to it, it's not long before many other works are added. And so she began to add uh, dietary laws and lots of other laws that were required for salvation. Any church or denomination that compromises the gospel of grace will slip into fruitlessness and obscurity in terms of kingdom impact and gospel fruitfulness. Any church that compromises the gospel of grace. See, oftentimes people will say, um, what's, what's Ridgeline like? And I'll say, well, in, in the essentials, we hold those with a very closed fist. Salvation by grace through faith alone in Christ alone is one of those essentials. Scripture as our sole and reliable guide for faith. Those aren't up for debate. Cultural things. Do we have uh, pews? Do we sing hymns? Can I wear a hoodie to preach in? Or do I have to wear a suit and tie? Right. Some of those things we kind of hold with an open hand based on our conviction. You might notice that once a month I wear a suit jacket and once a month I wear a hoodie. I mean, the secret's out. I just kind of change it up so that once a month somebody says, oh, he, he, Gibson looks nice today. And other days they think, eh, kind of looks like a slob today. And, right? Because I'm, you know, everything to everybody, right? That's what Paul said, that become all things to all people. But, but that's kind of a culture. Does the Bible command me to wear a suit to preach? And no. No, it's one of those open things. But, but I will not compromise on our doctrinal distinctives. We hold those with a closed fist. So the question that you have to answer is this. Was Jesus' death on the cross sufficient? Was His atoning death enough to save you? What can you add to salvation by grace? What can I add to Cezanne? Are we required, like the Catholic system, to receive grace as mediated by priests through baptism and confirmation and the rosary, all those things? Or is faith in Jesus Christ and His finished work on the cross enough to save us? What can you do to improve on that? Listen, salvation has always been by grace through faith. In the Old Testament, in the Exodus wilderness, when many of the children of Israel, having just been freshly delivered out of Egypt, 
were grumbling against God. I'm thankful God doesn't do this today, but many people were bitten by poisonous snakes, right? Aren't you glad that when we grumble, we're not immediately bitten by a poisonous snake, right? Uh, But when that happened, they were bitten by uh, poisonous snakes, and many of them began to perish. And so God told Moses to, to fasten the head of a snake on a pole and to instruct the Israelites that when anybody is bitten, they should look to that image and believe and that they would be healed. And Jesus picks up on that in John 3 with his conversation with Nicodemus. And he says, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up so that whoever does the right works will be saved. Is that what he said? No. He said, so that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And it's not just there. Genesis 15, 6, Abraham believed in the Lord and the Lord counted it to him as righteousness long before the law came into play. Habakkuk 2, 4, the righteous shall live by faith. And it's the same in the New Testament. Romans 1, you can read all of Galatians, but you can read Galatians 3, 11, Hebrews 10, 38, John 3, 36. The gospel that we preach is a gospel of grace by salvation. That you contribute nothing to the atoning work of Christ on the cross except for the sin that made it necessary for him to go to the cross. Is that clear? We don't contribute anything to our salvation. Why would God the Father send his son Jesus to the cross to die if there was some other way for you to be saved, like works-based righteousness? Why would he do that? Why would Jesus pray in the Garden of Gethsemane, if there's any other way, take this cup away from me? There was no other way. Jesus went to the cross. Verses 6 through 21, the question came up for Paul and Barnabas within the church at Antioch. And so they sent the delegation to Jerusalem to meet with the apostles and the elders of the Jerusalem church. And so in in verses 6 through 21 of Acts chapter 15, we see grace defended and displayed. So everybody gathers together to debate the issue. And there are three particular speeches that are highlighted. Peter jumps up first and he describes the Cornelius experience. Remember in Acts chapter 10, Peter is at the house of Simon the Tanner and he's on top of the roof and he's smelling lunch as he's taking a nap. And then he sees this vision of a sheet coming down from heaven three times with all kinds of animals in it. And he hears the voice of God say, rise, kill and eat, Peter. And, uh, and so he says, Lord, no, never. Nothing unclean will has ever touched my lips and I won't eat anything unclean. And the Lord says, don't call anything unclean that I've declared clean. Three times it happens and then it's taken back up. And then the Gentiles envoy comes from Cornelius and they say come to Cornelius's house right away Uh, he has sent us here from a vision from God and Peter goes because he says God has told me not to call anything unclean that he has declared clean Peter recounts that experience and he says there are three evidences that God has chosen the Gentiles and he uses us and them language all throughout Peter's speech God gave them the Holy Spirit just like he gave it to us God approved them and sent me to them just like he did for us. God called them without any works, without any, anything else. He saved them on the spot. If you remember from um, Acts chapter 10, Peter could hardly even get the gospel out before the Holy Spirit fell on them and they were all saved and they began displaying the evidences of their salvation. The next speech highlighted in verses 6 through 21, Paul and Barnabas get up and they tell their experiences of sharing the gospel of grace with the Gentiles. And what accompanies the gospel of grace? It's signs and wonders. Signs and wonders always accompany 
and authenticate and verify truth where it hasn't been received yet. See, the Judaizers had no signs or wonders. There were no miracles that they could point to and say, you see how salvation is through works? Look at all the miracles that God has done through us that verify and authenticate the message. Thirdly, James speaks and he confirms Peter's experience showing that God had prophesied. He quotes Amos chapter 9, verses 11 through 12. So James speaks, he confirms Peter's experience. He quotes Amos and he says that God had predicted, even in our scriptures of the Old Testament, that he would redeem a people from the Gentile world. So now we have the council of apostles and elders, Peter, James, Paul, Barnabas. They all agree together that we are saved by grace. Their decision is unanimous and they are unified about the gospel. So here's the effects of that resolution. They welcomed the Gentiles as full members of the household of God. Because the prophets had prophesied, because Peter had been commanded by the Holy Spirit to preach, because the Gentiles had received the Holy Spirit, because Paul and Barnabas had experienced extreme fruitfulness in proclaiming the gospel. The Gentiles were not excluded. They didn't have to come into the foyer of Judaism before entering into the auditorium of the church. There was no division. There was no separation. There were no first-class citizens of the kingdom and second-class citizens of the kingdom. They were equally children of God and leaders in the kingdom. Isn't that beautiful? But for the sake of fellowship... They settled the issue of the gospel of grace. But now what's the church going to look like when a horde of Gentiles comes in and they're eating barbecue and they're eating bacon and the, the Jewish people, this is offending their sensibilities and, and they're, they're doing all these things that are against the law of Moses. And so how are they supposed to coexist in a congregation together? They can't sit at a table together and eat because of the dietary laws and the restrictions that, that, that uh, Jews would have been uh, self-conscious about. So James recommends some things that the Gentile believers abstain from. Now, listen. This is not for salvation. This is for fellowship after salvation. Within the church, James recommends you will do well to avoid uh, meat sacrificed to idols. You see, when in the Roman world, when they in each city they would go to, uh, they would have these temples to different deities, and they they would sacrifice a pig or a cow or something uh, on the altar. And then, uh, of course, the idol wouldn't eat the pig or the cow, right? It would just sit there. And so, when the service was over of sacrifice, a butcher would come and they would sell that meat at discount, right? And you could walk through the market the next day and you could get you know steaks for half price just dedicated to idols last night. Uh, this was, you know, sacrificed to Zeus. And so it's 50% off today. And so, so they would get that meat and they would cook it up and they would eat it. And, and this was uh, um, deplorable to the Jews, meat sacrificed to idols. But, but to the Gentile believers, they were, hey, it's just, God has cleansed my conscience. This doesn't I'm not worshiping an idol. I'm just saving a few dollars on meat, right? This is, this is all. But, but because of that, James recommended that they avoid these things within the fellowship. Meat sacrificed to idols, blood, any animal that was strangled, and sexual immorality. 
James is saying, listen, this is not an issue of salvation. It's just an issue of fellowship within the church, which is going to be made up of Jews and Gentiles. So please, for the sake of unity within the congregation, for the sake of a Jewish and Gentile church to remain close in fellowship and doctrine, please make these abstentions or it's going to divide. And we're going to have a a Jew-only church and we're going to have a Gentile-only church and there's going to be a lack of unity Paul reaffirms this in Romans 14. He says, Accept him whose faith is weak without passing judgment on disputable matters. And then he he lists all those disputable matters. So how does that play out for us in this congregation? These aren't salvation issues. These aren't top-tier issues. These aren't those high-level things. But, But what about you when you have different convictions? You have personal convictions to sing hymns and psalms or to sing worship songs. To stand for the reading of the Word of God, or not to stand. Dietary issues, to eat certain foods, or not to eat. To diffuse essential oils, or not to diffuse essential oils. To listen to Led Zeppelin on occasion, or to listen to Christian music only. To homeschool, or private school, or public school. Um, In the... 50s, I've heard in the, in the Mennonite world that it was wrong to wear a wedding band. And that was, a, that was a serious issue, right? We make up these sort of non-gospel essential issues all the time. And instead of giving grace to believers, like Romans 14 says, to accept him whose faith is weak without passing judgment on disputable matters, what we often do is we make our personal preference issues non-negotiable and we're willing to compromise on doctrine. See how wicked that is? I had a guy once tell me, I don't sing songs that trash on the wall. I only sing out of a hymn book. So when is that a gospel issue? The point of worship is where your heart is, not where the music is, not where the lyrics are projected. We do this all the time. Are, those, are your personal convictions binding on everyone for salvation? Are you mature enough in your faith to distinguish between the doctrines and the convictions that unite us all as believers? Are you so petty that you're willing to divide a congregation over personal preferences and secondary issues? Listen, it happens all the time, right? You've seen it. If you've been walking with the Lord for any length of time, you'll see churches divide over decorations, silly stuff. The point James is making is that for the unity of the fellowship, can we abstain from a few things so that you don't cause a brother or sister in Christ to stumble by your freedoms that are not gospel issues, that God has given you freedom in order to exercise your walk of faith in a certain way and not have to bind other believers with your convictions. That's the point of the letter and the abstentions. So after receiving and affirming the gospel of grace, we should show grace to those with whom we are in fellowship. If you've really received the grace of God, if he's forgiven you of all your sins and you're cleansed and made righteous, right? Jesus told the parable of the the sinner, uh, the man who owed 500 denarii and the man who owed 50. And he said, who's going to love more? And the Pharisee said, I guess the one who were forgiven a greater debt. The point of that passage is those who have received much grace give much grace. Are you a graceful person 
Are you known as a person of grace within the congregation? Or are you a legalistic? My convictions, you must abide by all my convictions kind of person. To receive the gospel of grace is to give grace within the congregation. Read Romans 14 for more information. Verses 22 through 35, grace is delivered and described. James and the apostles, the elders, they officially send out men. They write this um, nice letter. They send a letter with Paul and Barnabas, but they also send two men. You see, before the men came down from Judea, and they weren't necessarily from James, they weren't authorized. But now James makes sure, he says, these are authorized men to deliver the same message that you're going to read in this note. They gather the congregation together and they deliver the letter. And the response from the Gentile church and the Jewish believers as well at Antioch is they rejoiced. They rejoiced because of its encouragement. What can we do in response to this passage? I think the primary thing is is that you need to understand that salvation is by grace through faith in Christ alone. And that you need to have your radar up enough to be able to reject anyone or any teaching that promotes Jesus plus something. Understand the gospel of grace, one. And number two, reject the gospel of works or legalism. Let me, let me say it this way. I didn't understand the gospel of grace very clearly. I knew that I was a sinner. I knew that I'd been forgiven. I knew that great grace had been given to me as a person who was very lost. But it didn't really click for me until um, something happened in 2003 or 2004. I'd been a believer for 10 or more years. And um, a a woman previously homeless um, had come to our kind of inner city church and um, she got saved. A Sunday school class adopted her. And they, they helped her get off the streets. And they helped her and her kids, two teenage sons, get into a house. Um, they um, helped her get a budget set up. They helped her get work lined out. They, they really went overboard in helping Treva. She was baptized. She was discipled. She really began to grow in her faith and, and, and got back on her feet. It was beautiful. But at some point, uh, her teenage sons, um, who weren't believers, got into trouble and um, upset her fragile rental situation to where by the time it had landed on my desk, the Sunday school group of ladies said, you, you got to step in because she's going to get evicted. So I called the landlord and I just said, hey, listen, I'm the associate pastor at this church at Northwest and, and um, I understand that you're, you need to evict uh, Treva, but I'm just begging you, just give her one more month and, and I'll help her find a new place. Um, I'll help her move and I'll personally make sure it's clean by the time you get here. If you'll give her one more month. This guy was going to drive up from Houston that day to, to get him out. And so... He said, okay, reluctantly. He said, okay, I'll, I'll do that. And so uh, within a week, the Lord provided a great place. And she was able to, to, we were able to help her put down money and get into this new place. Uh, w- within two weeks, she was able to move 
and start to stay over there and, and transition to that place. And so with two weeks left, I called her three or four times a week and just said, hey, let's make sure that he's coming you know, next Tuesday and we're going to make sure it's clean. And so I'm willing to come and I'm going to come over that Tuesday and I'm going to bring a shampooer and I'm going to clean your carpets and we're going to bring a steamer and we're just going to go to town and we're going to, I told this guy it's going to be clean and, and so we're going to make sure that it's clean. And, and so, oh, yeah, okay, yeah, we're going to do it. We're going to do it. And so sure enough, the Tuesday comes and I get there at six in the morning and I've got uh, clothes on. It's July in Oklahoma, so it's 180 degrees already. And so I'm about to clean and, and I notice that all the doors are locked and there's nobody there. And so I go around and I look and I can't get in. No one's there. So I'm discouraged, sit in my car for 30 minutes, 45 minutes, an hour. And by this time it's eight o'clock and I'm kind of fuming a little bit. And so I go around, I check all the uh, doors again, and finally I see that there's a broken window by the back door of this garage apartment that I can reach in carefully without cutting my arm and, and unlock the door. But as soon as I reach in, I'm knocked back by a smell, and I, I open the door, and what I discovered is that three dogs had lived in this 800-square-foot um, garage apartment with them against their lease, and so that became the bathroom, right, for, for the animals. But that wasn't the worst of the issues. The worst of the issues was I couldn't see the floor. There was a path that walked from the single bedroom to the kitchenette and, and a place where two mattresses used to sit on the floor. And, and so it's, uh, it's disgusting. I open up every window and I open up every door and for the next two hours, I, I shovel everything into the center of the room and sweep it and put it in these piles. And the piles are getting waist high of just filth. And as I'm doing this, I'm seeing needles for drug paraphernalia. I'm seeing papers for, for uh, you know, smoking weed. And I'm seeing um, pipes and I'm seeing um, alcohol bottles everywhere. I'm seeing pornography all over the place. I'm just seeing filth, waste, animal waste. Everything is disgusting. And I'm just furious, Right. No one's here, I'm by myself, and this guy's going to be here in eight hours driving up from Houston. And so I go outside, and I sulk for a minute, and then I put a bandana over my face, and I go back in, and I bring a dumpster in, and I'm just going to start shoveling this stuff. And as I get the first big shovel full, just in my spirit, the Lord says, you know, this house looks a lot like your life did when I moved in. And I'm starting to realize that I'm starting to realize that all the things that I was disgusted in by their house were the same things that were residing in my life before I became a believer. The drugs, the alcohol, the immorality, the filth, the, in the same way that God had given me a soul that I had just polluted and filled my life with sin and nasty. And just with that word, Jesus said, this, this house looks like your life did. I just was arrested I, I was arrested. I couldn't do anything. I just held that shovel. And, and uh, you know, the more I sat there and looked at it, I was like, you're right, Lord. And yet you came into my life and you lovingly, humbly served me and cleaned up my life and gave me a new start. And a, you cleaned me. I, I mean, I, I don't think I've worshipped like I did that day since. I cleaned that house for the next three hours before anybody showed up. Just 
Jesus, thank you for cleaning my life and getting rid of the filth. And by the time they showed up, it was, I'm on the floor with bleach and, you know, steamer. I was not, I was still a little mad, right? A little bit, but, but man, I had a picture of grace. Did Treva deserve the help that I gave her that day? Nope. But God gave her grace that day. But more importantly, God gave me a picture of His amazing grace in my own life. And He gave me a visual reminder of my condition before I believed. By believing in Jesus, He moved into my body via the Holy Spirit and just lovingly took square inch after square inch and began to sanctify me. Do you deserve to be saved? Do you think that your house is any cleaner than Treva's, spiritually speaking? Jesus said that the, the Pharisees were like whitewashed tombs, right? They looked great on the outside, but inside they were what? Full of dead men's bones. They were, they were wretched. He said that our good works are like filthy rags before him. Do you think that your righteousness and your holiness and your legalism and your good works are sufficient enough to save you? Listen, your house might look different than Trevis. Your life might look different than mine did before. But Romans 3.23 says that we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You possess no righteousness outside of Christ. We see here the gospel is by salvation by grace through faith. Sola fide. Faith alone. Our justification before God is by faith in Christ alone and not by works. And that's worth fighting for. If you ever go to a church and they're preaching a works-based salvation or Jesus plus something, that's your cue to run. We are here to preserve the gospel of grace and to pass it down. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word today. And we thank you for this series in Acts that has been so uh, inspiring and helpful to help us understand uh, the beauty of the gospel that when uh, Jesus says, I will build my church, uh, you promise to build it. We thank you that you use broken people like myself and you use broken people like us who are sinners that don't have it all together. Uh, We thank you that your grace is sufficient Your power is made perfect in our weakness. And you using us has nothing to do with how uh, righteous in and of ourselves we perceive ourselves to be. We thank you more than anything that when you look at us in Christ Jesus, you see the righteousness, his sinlessness that covers us. We thank you that we didn't earn that or deserve it. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 says that it is by grace you have been saved through faith not by works so that no one can boast. Father, would you help us to see if we haven't already yet seen it, just how sinful we are and just how much we need Jesus. I pray today that if someone hasn't yet trusted in Him, if they're still leaning on their own sufficiency, that they would repent of their sin, of self-righteousness, their morality, or their trust in their own works that denigrates the cross of Christ. 
makes it look as though it, your death on the cross was not enough, that they could improve on salvation. Would you help us to repent of that notion? And as a congregation, would you help us to hold those convictions which are not top-tier issues, help us to hold them loosely, giving each other grace within the fellowship, not demanding that we each conform to our own understanding of what righteousness looks like, but by no means compromising on the way in which your word instructs us to live. Help us to be a people of grace. And would you do so for your own glory? In Jesus' name, amen.